Welcome to Cinemascope, a new podcast from True Story FM. Hi, I'm Andy Nelson, co-host of the Next Real Film podcast and Movies We Like. As a passionate movie lover, I've always relished exploring the diverse landscape of cinema. And when you look closer at the taxonomy of genres, subgenres, and film movements, you see an intricate web of interconnections and influences. This complex cinematic family tree spans only 125 years. So how did styles as diverse as the French New Wave, New Queer Cinema, and Ozploitation emerge? What cultural, economic, and technological forces sculpted these styles? And what hidden threads unite them all as part of the same fantastic art form? Those questions sent me on a journey to explore each style and trace their impacts, all to better understand the bridges between different styles. And that led me here to Cinemascope. In each episode, I'll be exploring one particular genre, subgenre, or film movement in depth, inviting expert guests to help us all better understand what defines that style, how it came to be, and what branches it, in turn, influenced on this big cinematic family tree. For example, how did German Expressionism shape American film noir? What's the difference between Westerns, Spaghetti Westerns, and Brazilian Nordesterns? We'll examine the economic and socio-political forces that birthed categories like black exploitation, and we'll spotlight visionary films and directors key to the evolution of different styles. So join me as we explore the complex forces that shape film's evolution and appreciate the diverse creativity possible in its relatively brief history. Let Cinemascope be your guide to understanding this art form we cherish how its genres blend, bounce off each other, and advance a rich tapestry of storytelling innovation. Together, we'll gain a deeper appreciation for this wondrous, shape-shifting medium. Our journey begins soon. Be part of this adventure by subscribing to Cinemascope today. I'm Pete Wright. And I'm Andy Nelson. Welcome to The Next Reel. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. In just a matter of seconds, you're going to hear a classic episode of this show from back in the day when we called ourselves Movies We Like. It took us a while to settle into the show's format, so you'll notice some differences as you listen to these episodes. For instance, it takes us a bit of time to actually get into the conversation about the movie. Things like that. But we're still proud of the conversations about the movies themselves, and we think they're worth keeping in the library. So enjoy these episodes from our back catalog. And you can become part of our Discord community, learn more about the show, and find out how you can become a supporting member at thenextreel.com. So thank you, everybody, for downloading and listening to The Next Reel. We appreciate your time and attention, and we hope you enjoy the show. It was the first time at this dentist. And uh, and, and I'll tell you, it, she gave me some not great news, and I still like her afterwards, so that was good. Wow. Man, it's going to be some work. Mm. Yeesh. Mm. Not liking that at all. Gums. It's all about the gums. They're receding. Mm. What do you think about that? Terrible. Receding gum lines, receding makes... hairlines. <laughs> like, what is all this? <clears throat> it makes me feel. It makes me feel guilty. Oh, I'm feeling Se- guilty today. Aren't segue. You? Uh, Are you the, feeling uh, guilty? Uh, Are you, know, you feeling it too? I woke up feeling guilty today, Pete. <laughs> yes, you did. <laughs> Uh, so we're talking about our guilty pleasures here. We're, we're going to start right in. No teasers here. We're just jumping right in. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Uh, how did we decide who goes first last time we did this? I think we did them both at the same time. 
as I recall. Yep. We did one, two, three, and then we said them both at the same time. That's a that uh, seem, in hindsight, I think that's a horrible idea. <laughs> well, I think we did it because we didn't want to go. Oh, that's that's even guiltier than I thought. So I'm gonna oh, one, no, I'm gonna one up him by picking something else. Oh, that's pretty good. I don't think I'm that sharp. I don't think I could come up with something guiltier after having he- heard yours. Uh, yeah, mine's, I, mine's guilty enough. I feel terrible about mine. <laughs> this, and, I feel much. What did you do last time? Uh, I, I did, I think, probably the, the guiltiest one that we've talked about so far on this show, which was knowing. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I don't even, I don't remember my, what was mine? Which yours one was, was mine? Uh, I, f- uh, the, I feel uh, guilty about all the films. Uh, eighth Dimension. What's oh, name? yeah, Buckaroo Banzai. Yeah, yeah. Buckaroo yeah. yeah, no, and, and you know, I, I think, I think I, I get it this time because I really do feel horrible about this film that I'm about to talk about. I really do. <laughs> and and I didn't feel horrible the last one. You know, I, I really enjoyed that film. And I really enjoyed this film, but I feel bad about it. That one I don't feel bad about liking. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. All right, shall we do this? All right, let's do it. <laughs> All right. One, two, three. three. Under Volunteers. the Cherry Moon. <laughs> <laughs> Wow, okay. I'm glad now, I'm glad I got the other uh, purple rain out of the way. <laughs> <laughs> now, see, okay, let's talk about this just for a bit. I uh, I don't feel bad about liking Purple Rain. I, you know, I'm a huge Prince fan. I love Prince, and there was a time where Prince's movies were the thing that I was all about and and really enjoyed them. And and I still, I every time I put Purple Rain on, I I really <laughs> I really like it. The music's good. There are some interesting visuals. Under the Cherry Moon is uh, is 1986 follow up, uh, which is essentially Dirty Rotten Scoundrels uh, in uh, uh, you know Prince and uh, his friend are um uh in uh in the mediterranean and they're scamming money off of off of women and um it's it's like a con thing it's shot in black and white it has a uh wow terrible uh imdb review and i think it is the lowest oh, here it is rotten tomatoes review that i've ever uh, rating that i have ever done which is coming in at 25 percent nice uh, so I, but I love that he tried some black and white. I love that he's trying some new things. I love a lot of the music. And, uh, so I, we're going to talk about it, man. We are going to talk about it. Well, at least yours has an audience score on Rotten Tomatoes of 70%. <laughs> Mine, <laughs> That's true. volunteers, it's a 58% uh, tomato meter, but it's only a 34% audience score. So it's even lower. And, you know, I, I was I was really struggling trying to find a good guilty pleasure. So I had to dip back into the, the old Tom Hanks well, because, you know, I, uh, I, yeah. I feel guilty about liking uh, pretty much everything that he's done. And um, uh, volunteers, I've just always loved this one. The, the, I think that he and John Candy have a great, uh, just always have great chemistry on screen. Um, this has a nice little uh, comedic spin on The Bridge on the River Kwai. Uh, but I know it's a pretty bad film, yet I saw it at an age where I watched it so many times that it's, I, I <laughs> there's so many quotes in this movie that I just, I say all the time, or I just, I love hearing them. And so, you know, I'm excited about talking about this one, even though I know it's uh, pretty guilty for me. <laughs> <laughs> I think we share uh, we share the shame this time around, and I I love that we picked films that were released like within a year of each other. I know completely. Uh, I uh, think that's unexpected. pretty funny. Yeah. Um. So that when do we? When are we going to be doing these? Uh, 
guilty pleasure uh, shows. The guilty- because, you know, we got to make sure people <laughs> don't download those weeks. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, those are going to be at, right at the end of July, beginning of August. That's when we're going to be uh, doing those two shows. So that should be quite Excellent. a bit of fun. Excellent. I'm going to need lots of time. Yes, indeed. to watch. Yes, yeah. indeed. Well, you know what else we need to uh, uh, to announce, Pete, along with the fact that uh, we're going to be doing our guilty pleasures at the end of July and the beginning of August, is that uh, we are posting all the rest of the films we're going to be talking about uh, between now and the end of the year. We're going to have that up on Letterboxd, and we'll also throw it up on Facebook. So everyone can now jump on and uh, catch up with all the movies that we're going to be talking about so they can listen to the shows when they go live. Outstanding. I love that list. It looks really good. We've got a lot of fun shows coming up, a fun series, and I'm looking forward to, uh, I think I'm pretty much looking forward to all of these. It's going to be a great rest of the year. Excellent. All right. Now it's time. Let's tell the people where we're from. Uh, Where are we from, Pete? Hey, everybody. This is The Next Reel. I'm Pete Wright, and there's Andy Nelson. Hey, hey. And we spoil the movies tonight on the show. This is the first in our ser- new series on the work of cinematographer James Wong Howe with W.S. Van Dyke's 1934 film, The Thin Man. Uh, but before we get into that, you should learn more about us at thenextreel.com. Subscribe for free on iTunes or follow us on Twitter and Facebook at The Next Reel. And if you're the kind of person who walks around with a flashlight in one hand just so you can accentuate your shadows then you're also the kind of person who should head over to Instagram.com slash The Next Reel and play The Next Reel's Instagram hashtag PonyPrize hashtag Guess the Movie Challenge. Andy, how'd we do against the cunning detectives this week? Uh, it was a pretty good week. It was uh, some great 70s images from Escape from the Planet of the Apes. I love the series. This one is a... I, I don't know if I could call it a guilty pleasure, <laughs> but because uh, I think it may be... I don't know what the Rotten Tomato reading is on Escape from the Planet of the Apes, but I sure love it. Um... Uh, but it had some great just 70s images that were really throwing people in all sorts of different directions. But uh, third image, though, Jojo Lee 23 was able to figure it out. And uh, she hadn't won in a while, as she points out. But, uh, yeah, she took it on this one and now is entered to win the 2015 Pony Prize. Outstanding, Joe Jolie. Congratulations. This was the one with uh, Roddy McDowell. Or, or, yeah, what's his... Well, they're uh, all with Roddy McDowell. They're all with Roddy Ricardo McDowell. Ricardo Montalban. The, Ricardo Montalban, that's right. right. The young yeah. Ricardo Montalban. Right, he runs the circus. Yes, that was the one. Mm-hmm. 78%, audience score 53. There you go. Meh. Critics I like, like this. Crit- I did like this one. Critics like volunteers better. <laughs> 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 it's time, Andy. Let's do some trailers. So, Pete. Yeah, Andy. How do you feel about chess? Oh, I do like me some chess. I like me some chess. I, I can't say I'm a very good player. I think I'm just a little too impatient to, to really sit down and have a good long old game of chess. But... I do find chess a very interesting game. I, I find it to be just such an interesting, interestingly designed game with so much strategy involved. And uh, I, it's it's so interesting, in fact, that so few films get made about it because, I mean, I guess it's not that interesting to watch. But um, I did really enjoy Searching for Bobby Fischer. And this new movie that's coming out in September, Pawn Sacrifice, about Bobby Fischer, looks really interesting. I am quite excited. And I think... 
the things that actually make me the most excited. I mean, it's got an, a, a cast that I think looks interesting. Tobey Maguire as Bobby Fischer. Peter Sarsgaard is in it. And Liev Schreiber is in it as one of the Russians that Boris goes up to, against to play. Um, Michael Stuhlbarg is in it. It's got a, a great cast. But what excites me the most is that Stephen Knight, who we have uh, talked about as liking quite a bit on our show before, he is uh, one of the three guys who came up with the story and he wrote the screenplay for this. So um, that, to me, uh, just right away, tags this as something that is now on my must-see list for the year. Edward Zwick is directing it. I know he's one of uh, one of your faves. Um, <laughs> but, uh, and I, I think he's done some good stuff, too. But, uh, you know, for a uh, biopic, I think it looks really interesting. And not having really known anything about Bobby Fischer except for like the whole searching for Bobby Fischer angle where he kind of disappeared from public life and all that. This really intrigued me because I got a glimpse as kind of the, the kind of uh, the insane genius that was behind this chess player and how, uh, how he portrayed himself and his battle against the Russians and everything. We're at war. It's a war of perception. Bye, bye. The poor kid from Brooklyn against the whole Soviet empire. Looks very interesting. I am quite looking forward to seeing this one. I am too. It's one of those where even though I know how it ended, I'm still interested to see how they get there. Uh, And I'm also with you on chess movies. I really like chess movies, and it is sad that I cannot think of more chess movies that I actually, uh, that that because I I find myself whenever I watch movies about chess and that are well-made movies about the bout, they're like great boxing movies. You know, I just love, I I just love that feeling. So I'm looking forward to this one. I think, uh, I think uh, uh, Leif Schreiber looks really good. Um, as Spassky, I think he's he looks great, and uh, he's a perfect Russian. Him. He is a perfect Russian, <laughs> really perfect Russian. And Tobey Maguire, of course, I'm uh, very excited to see him on screen again. This looks like a great role for him. Yeah, absolutely. This is going to be uh, hitting theaters. It looks like a limited release initially, but uh, hitting theaters uh, in September, September 18th. Excellent. Uh, my film, Youth. Written and directed by Paolo Sorrentino with Michael Caine and Harvey Keitel. Uh, it's a story of uh, old friends vacationing in the Alps, figuring out how to live with being old. Caine plays this composer, uh, a retired composer. Keitel plays a, a director. And uh, this is, I think, yet another film that catalogs what you and I will be like in a scarce uh, few decades. <laughs> indeed, indeed. <laughs> I, I have seen only two other films from Sorrentino, both of which I quite liked. This Must Be The Place with Sean Penn as the uh, uh, old rock, or, rock and roller. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and The Great Beauty, which I did not like as much when I first saw it. But when I saw it again pretty recently, I found it just stunningly beautiful. I thought it was a really, really uh, wonderfully shot film and was very excited about it. So uh, I, I think this, uh, I think youth looks really interesting. Uh, it also stars, uh, you know, the beautiful and talented Rachel Wise, uh, Paul Dano, Jane Fonda. It's, uh, it looks like a really great uh, cast on a on a film that um, you know that addresses some issues that I've been thinking about as I went to the dentist this week. Did you take a piss today? Four drops. The same, more or less. More, more or less. Less. Gosh, you guys have got a strange friendship. Strange? The good friendship. You only tell each other the good thing. It looks really interesting. It reminds me of that trailer we talked about a little while ago of two, uh, it was a foreign film, two older yep. friends who went and hung out in Iceland or 
Greenland or something, which yes, it, it really looks intriguing, and it looks like a, a nice film for these two guys to be in, and um, I I like the feel of it. It just has a, a great sensibility, and I definitely am looking forward to this one too. This one hits. Uh, it, it actually has no U.S. release date, but it is uh, its its first big screening is May twentieth in uh, at Cannes. Uh, and it opens, so it opens simultaneously in Italy and France on May 20th, and then uh, I'm assuming we'll get it someday, but it's one that, that's worth keeping an eye on. It looks like a, a sweet movie. I don't like crooks, and if I did like them, I wouldn't like crooks that are stool pigeons. And if I did like crooks that are stool pigeons, I still wouldn't like you. What happened if it isn't Philo Vance? I beg your pardon? Who said that? I haven't seen you since you solved the kennel murder case. How are you? Well, for the love of... Nick Charles, what are you doing up there? Impersonating a book cover? Shh. I'm working on a case. Don't tell me you've gone back to detective work. I thought you had turned respectable. Didn't you get married? Oh, didn't I? Vance, I married a girl in a million. Hmm. I heard it was a girl uh, with a million. Well, same thing. I've become a California gentleman. I never heard of such a thing. What are you doing here in New York? Well, it seems that Clark Gable is making some personal appearances here, which uh, interests my wife. And there's a very good bar at the Ritz, which is all right with me. So we popped into town to play. But would you believe it? Before you could say Metro Golden Mayor, I stepped right into the middle of a baffling murder mystery, and they put me to work. Well, you poor fellow, you have my deepest sympathy. I can use it. Believe me, Vance, this case is a toughie. It all revolves about a tall, thin man. I was standing at the bar of the Ritz one day, uh, reaching for an olive, when a very pretty girl suddenly popped up in front of me and said, uh, Hello there. Hello. Uh, another glass. How are you? You know, we do know each other. Certainly, we've known each other for years. Aren't you Nick Charles? Yes. You don't remember me. I'm Dorothy Wynant. How is your father? Oh, that's what I came to ask you. He's disappeared. Chris, what are you going to do? That's what I said I'd do. Chris, you wouldn't do that. Nikki, automatically Nikki, put uh, after in here with me tonight. <laughs> oh, yeah? That knife's missing. I'll look for it in your back. It's about Julia Wolf. Did you kill her? Gilbert! Well, why not? You had a perfectly good motive. How'd you like to have a couple of little murderers for your children? And maybe I haven't been on a merry-go-round since that day. Are you, uh, anywhere near a solution? Between you and me, I think so. I got all the suspects together at a dinner party. And then I pulled a fast one. I told them, and the murderer is right here in this room tonight. He's sitting here at this table. Are you uh, sure that the murderer is one of that group? Not absolutely. But I know where to find out. Where? Right in there. Now, you watch me. I'm going to dissolve slowly into this book. And if you'll stand by, I'll give you the answer. The Thin Man, 1934. This is the first film of, I think, what, what it ended up being, six, a series of six, not even really a series, but it's the six films chronicling the investigations of Nick and Nora Charles. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. This one was based on the uh, Dashiell Hammett book of the same name. And I think it was actually the this was the only book that was uh, that was based on uh, Nick or it was about Nick and Norrell Charles because then he he died I guess right Dashiell Hammett yeah 
Is that right? I... Am I making things up? It's possible I'm making things up. It's possible. I, I don't know. I didn't look as much into Dashiell Hammett, but... Uh, um, hmm. Well, I'm going to correct myself on that later if I, if I, uh, if I in fact, was wrong. Okay. Yeah. Uh, but uh, these, these are really iconic characters, husband and wife, detective, uh, I, sort of a team, a pair, uh, and uh, really, really fun to see William Powell and Myrna Loy on screen together. I feel like we should talk just a bit about the trailer because ah. I, I, I let it run. It's a funny trailer, and we just heard most of it. I didn't care, uh, cut very much of it, but I had to actually research because it, it offers some... Uh, it, it offers another character of the time mm-hmm. that I did not know about. Right, Philo Vance. Did, Philo Vance. Right. Did you know much of this Philo Vance? I didn't until I started uh, digging up on uh, on old William Powell. Yes. Uh, so this is uh, this is a conversation between uh, the trailers. A conversation between. Uh, Nick Charles and Philo Vance, and Nick Charles is on the cover of a, a giant display of a book, and they're they're talking to one another. and And Philo Vance is another fictional character who was in a, a series of crime novels by S. S. Van Dien. Uh, the uh, looks like the pen name of Willard Huntington Wright between the twenties and thirties, and so. Vance was a really, really popular character in uh, in books and movies and radio, and was uh, the character that sort of introduced us to this new character of Nick Charles in the trailer. And I thought that was kind of an interesting way to do it, even if it doesn't really hold up over the decades. Well, and what you should mention is that both of those characters on screen were portrayed by William Powell. Yes. Well, you're right. I should that, I should say that. Right. That would make more sense. I am shamed. <laughs> It is funny because when you listen to it, I think it's really fun to listen to, but it really is this guy talking to himself. Right. <laughs> which is why it will sound like the guy talking to himself. So, same guy. Oh, very funny. So, that's Philo Vance. And, uh, but the trailer is another one of those kind of 30s trailers that we've talked about that I, I do love. They're very quaint, uh, where it, it, they take the actor out and they break the fourth wall of the film and they don't just show clips of the film and great big music, but they really talk about the film and it's, I, I find that immensely amusing. Absolutely. Absolutely. I will, uh, jumping back to Dashiell Hammett, uh, it looks like it was his last novel that he wrote, but then afterward, because of the success of it, he ended up um, writing a, the two, the next two screenplays after The Thin Man. Well, not the next two, but after The Thin Man and Shadow of the Thin Man. He wrote those two screenplays. Okay. He just didn't write any more books. He didn't write any more novels about the Thin Man. He did have, it looks like he did have some short fiction. He had one, I don't know if it's related, but it's called A Man Called Thin in 1961. And then The First Thin Man. Mm. So, I mean. So you'd say the the author part of him died. (laughs) Became the screenwriter. So what I told you was true. That's right. From a certain point of view. Whoa. Obi-Wan. And I just Obi-Wan all over you. <laughs> you sure did. I, I felt it. <laughs> uh. <laughs> Don't ever say that again. <laughs> Don't ever say that again. <laughs> uh, okay, so The Thin Man 1934. How'd this hold up for you? Uh, you know, I do enjoy this film. It's, it's a very different sort of film uh, to watch if you're not really walking in knowing what to expect. I had heard about the Thin Man series. We have talked about the Thin Man series several times on our show uh, because we have talked about um, the couple, Nick and Nora Charles, uh, both when we did Nick and Nora's Infinite Playlist and Mm -hmm. when we did Murder by Death. 
um, that just the couple of this, the, the pairing of this couple came up in both of those conversations. And I absolutely adore watching this couple on screen. I think they are so much fun. I, I did find a little thing here. It says, the films revolutionized the screen portrayal of marriage, previously earnest, virtuous, and staid, invigorating it with youth, irreverence, and sex appeal. I definitely agree with that. I have so much fun watching this couple on screen. And I think when I first watched this film, I watched it looking for kind of the mystery part of the story. And I really felt it lacking because it's really, you know, there's just not much to the actual mystery that uh, Nick is trying to solve in this particular story. However, the second time I watched it, I did find it a little more enjoyable because I did find it um, more about the characters and just more about this relationship of this couple. And the the case really seems just kind of like a side a side product of kind of, you know, that's why we're here, but we're really here to just enjoy ourselves with Nick and Nora Charles. I wouldn't put it like on one of my favorites or anything like that, but I do find myself enjoying it just really because of the chemistry. I am right with you. And I love that comment about marriage. I think that's a really, I don't think we can underscore that enough because, uh, you know, up until this point, the relationships that were the most fun in movies, the most sort of frivolous and frolicking and full of innuendo, they were all the relationships between, you know, uh, scoundrels and, uh, you know, and uh, just not married people. They were between people who were, who you know, the, the whole rule was once you get married, the relationship really went south. Right, right. Uh, and and this was a film that really celebrated the fun and and frivolity of of marriage. It's also a film that, you know, it, it portrays that that sort of innuendo and so much drinking and uh, you know this uh, you know particularly that sequence at the beginning uh, you know as, the, as she sits down and says you know how many martinis has he had? Well, this is his sixth. Well, I would like five more lined up right in a row here. Showing a woman drinking so much mm-hmm. um, is, is something that that um, you know they snuck in before the Hayes Code was uh, you know went into sort of full steam of uh censorship you know this was um this was a film that that got away with a lot more and and in fact it was as it was reined in in the in subsequent films you end up seeing things like uh you know they have a, a Nick Jr they have a child and the the he the drinking stops you know he he has to stop drinking and it's just it ends up being i think neutered in in that respect and and this film really showcases so much of that fun um that I, I think makes the film so much better. I think you're right. The the mystery is is introduced early on and then becomes just sort of a side project that that is a not as interesting. B, you know, much more confusing as we lead up to the final climactic sequence at the dinner table. That that is just you know, it's one of those just sort of thrown in to try to wrap up loose ends. I didn't really get a sense of accomplishment that I had helped solve anything as an audience member. Right. Right. I think that's exactly um, how these films are designed. And not having read the book, I can't speak to that. But it does sound like from what I've read about it, it sounds like the book was a pretty close adaptation um, to the book. Uh, With a few changes, um, Nick Charles was a much more overweight, out-of-shape character. Here, William Powell is uh, very tall and slender, so much so that even though the thin man title refers to the uh, to Wynant, the man who disappears in this film that Nick is trying to track down. Um, 
everybody started assuming that the Thin Man actually referred to Nick Charles. And so it it ended up, as the series continued, it ended up becoming something that they would just name it and kind of allude to the fact that it was Nick Charles, that it wasn't actually having anything to do with Wynant. So uh, interesting, that was one interesting little uh, change that ended up kind of affecting, really, the whole concept of what the title was even about. But uh, well, yeah. Particularly because, have you seen the other movies? I haven't. I haven't. And that's that's something I was wondering about as I was researching these, because I also have not. But the the whole conceit of the film is that uh, the the thin man refers to Wynant. We see him in, I, what would you say, the first 15 minutes, I think, of the film? Pretty and much. then he disappears. Yeah. And that's the mystery ensues. Where, where did this guy go? He's gone for months. There's money being exchanged. But where's the money going? Et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and... and so the caper is that he was murdered, and they find him in a fat man's suit right. to throw. They find his his bones in a fat man's suit, and that's the trick. That it, it wasn't a fat man; it was a thin man in a fat man's suit. So that's that's the whole thing. The thin man refers to a very specific character in a very specific movie. How do they handle that? <laughs> When the rest of the, are the rest of the movies about skinny people, like right, <laughs> is, is that a conceit they keep up? So I don't, I don't know about that, but I think it's, I, I think it's a funny, um, a funny name for a series. It is. And we'll we'll get to jump into it again because uh, pretty soon we're going to be talking about another one of these Thin Man movies. That's right. Yeah. Uh, so okay, uh, let's. It's this whole series that we're doing here, though. Uh, mm. Since we have we have agreed that the story of the Thin Man itself is middling to fair. Uh, the reason we're talking about this film is because of cinematographer James Wong Howe. Absolutely. So let's talk about James Wong Howe. Let's do it. All right. Um, uh, James Wong Howe is uh, what a, a funny character. Yeah. This guy uh, discovered uh, what by Cecil B. DeMille, I believe, uh, as a, an amusing uh, young Asian man with a cigar in his mouth. Right. And he. And- and he, and, well, I was going to say, and he, um, he really was kind of one of those guys who came to Hollywood right in the early, early days. I mean, he was born on August 28th, 1899 in China. His family moved them to uh, Washington, I believe. Pasco. And, yeah, Pasco, Washington, and uh, where his dad was like the, a, a shopkeeper. And interestingly, I mean, his name, James Wong Howe, was actually given to him by one of his teachers. Um, his first teacher actually refused to teach him. And then so the other teacher, she uh, taught him, but she said his name was too complicated to say. So she said, I'll just call you James Wong Howe. That'll be easier. I think his name his is... His dad's name, I think, is, is Wong Howe. Yeah, and I think he's yeah. Jin Wong Tung, I think is his name. Yeah. So uh, anyway, so he... Once he got got a little older, he became fascinated with the business. He moved to Hollywood, and he was just doing all sorts of odd jobs. I mean, he worked as a bellboy. He worked as a, I think when he finally started working on productions, he was like you know sweeping up film cut cut films in the labs and things like that. But yeah, he finally got to a place where Cecil B. DeMille did notice him, and uh, he became uh, he kind of started stepping up from that point. What I love so much about James Longhouse's um, path is, first of all, he stayed in Oregon for a while on his way south. And, you know, Oregon boy, he must That's, be quality. There you go. Um, but he also was first a, a still photographer. And, and his first camera came to him from that very store in Pasco. And uh, he, he just fell in love with, with photography. And uh, obviously, that's sort of close to my heart, too. And, and um, uh, 
so he when he got to Hollywood, he made his uh, he made his living by doing promotional stills for uh, actors and actresses, and and on this you know on the the type of film that he was shooting it was very difficult to make and i'm sure you actually would be able to talk more about this was to make uh, blue and green look like rich natural colors they were blue blind and so actresses with blue eyes would have these bright white eyes uh, and would look all washed out and so he started shooting them by having them stare into a giant piece of black felt Right, and right. that caused their eyes, their 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 uh, uh, their eyes to come in as a much darker, richer color, and that that's what got him his first his first job as a director of photography um, was an actress that said, "I want him shooting my movie." Right, because she wanted somebody who knew how to shoot her to make her look beautiful. Right. Yeah. Very right. interesting. Very interesting. Yeah. He he was somebody who. Um, started early on, I, you know, a lot of these cinematographers in the early days were very uh, focused on trying to uh, build, bring about all these uh, these new techniques because everything was being developed at the time. And we've talked about uh, Jack uh, Cardiff and, and things that he brought to the table. Uh, James Wong Howe was very, he, he liked his low-key lighting. He liked some dr- uh, dramatic lighting, deeper shadows. We definitely, uh, a lot of this film feels um, very kind of stagey, very kind of Hollywood. Um, but you do get some, um, uh, particularly when Nick starts kind of exploring, you get some beautifully dramatic lighting that really, I think, as we get into that, like, the last half of the film, there's some just dark stuff that's going on that I really enjoyed looking at. And that's something that Howe really liked to do. He also was somebody who uh, had developed some deep focus where he would have actors spread a, uh, pretty widely apart on screen, um, foreground and background, and everything would be in focus. And this was something that he started doing in 1931, 10 years before everybody credits Greg Toland with it uh, in in Citizen Kane, and uh, but I, I think that he was doing it in a way where it just it didn't it didn't he didn't feel like it needed to stand out so much. Um, he just did it because he felt uh, it it was part of the story. That's something that was very critical to him was that everyone's job was to uh, be subservient to the story, and he wanted to make sure that the things that he did didn't necessarily stand out so much. Now, Greg Tolland, Orson Welles, those are people who really wanted to make mark with uh, Citizen Kane, and I think that stuff definitely stands out in that film. The way that it was staged works really well in context of that film. Um, and maybe that's why uh, Greg Tolland got so much more credit for that than James Wong Howe, but James Wong Howe definitely was, uh, was kind of uh, involved in that uh, deep focus beforehand. I, uh, that, that deep focus is hard to do. It is. Uh, you need a lot of light. You need a lot of light, a lot of light, and a very, very, very tiny aperture on that on the camera. And to do so in in an era where film stock was just not that sensitive, it, it proves really complicated achievement to be able to do that and to do it. And and as as one of his sort of technical contributions to the field, to do it and not be sort of um, credited to it because again, it was such a part of the. Um, uh, of the gestalt of the film, of the storytelling of the film, I think he, um, I think he, he deserves more credit than he has gotten for it. Um, and and uh, you know, I think this goes to one of his greatest contributions, which is to raise the level of awareness of the importance of 
camera of cinematography, not just as a guy who does it, but as a guy who openly and actively advocated for the role as a key, uh, you know, central leg of the filmmaking stool, working directly with the director, not as just a, a, um, uh, you know, kind of a dumb camera as somebody to push the buttons. Yeah. And he was definitely uh, somebody who really did that. And listening or reading some interviews that uh, people who had worked with him, uh, where they are interviewed, he definitely comes across as somebody who is a little bit of a jerk on set. <laughs> he comes across as a guy who is very much, he knew exactly what he wanted. He clearly um, was very smart and, and uh, knew how to paint the image. But he wouldn't, uh, he wouldn't, uh, you know, he didn't like it when people would question him. He he wanted it the way that he wanted it because that's how it was supposed to be. And even the people who asked him questions about, uh, you know, why are you doing it this way? Like, I, I think there was one interview where uh, one of his uh, uh, assistants asked him, um, why are you, What what is the source for that light? And, and James Wong Howe looked at him and said, don't you ever question my source. That source is my source. And uh, but then the then the guy looked at the film when it was done, and he said, "Oh, I can see exactly what he was doing here. It looked perfect, and I shouldn't have questioned him." And everybody says he was really nice, nice offset, but on set they felt that he was just a he was he kind of had a little bit of a god complex, and they attribute some of that to the fact that he was a minority in this business, and really, uh, and he was very short, and, and he just felt like somebody who uh, could easily have been looked over, and so he, it was almost like he was fighting to make sure that they uh, remembered that he was an integral part to it, which stands to what you were just saying about him wanting to be one of those people who's like, I am a critical part of this project. Yeah, it, you know, I mean, even his own uh, sort of writing in response to some of these critics, I think belies sort of, um, you know, his his feeling of being on the team of filmmakers who make a film. He says, there are many studio workers behind the scenes whose contributions toward the excellence of a motion picture never receive the credit because outsiders have no way of discovering where one leaves off and another begins. I think that is so, so true. Hundreds and hundreds, sometimes thousands of people go into to making a film. In this era, definitely hundreds of people um, making a film. And it's so easy to sit by and, and criticize when you when you have no idea how the inner workings um, sort of brought the film together. And I, I think he was a, a, a loud advocate for for that. Absolutely. Yes, he was. Uh, I, to your point on the thin man, I, the second half of the film is much more dynamic and interesting to look at than the first you're it's like the film changes tone as soon as he as soon as he nick charles jumps into the investigation and and sort of takes the mantle of the investigator up until that point he was retired a retired investigator um you know he was living off of the money of his uh, the uh, of his spouse and uh really enjoying the high life and it, there are some really funny sequences that lead up to that uh you know, particularly this holiday party where all of the people that that he had caught and then had been released from prison <laughs> come <laughs> to to join him at a party, and uh, uh, there are just some. It's a, a wonderful place to see kind of how Nick and Nora interact with one another. Uh, but but in general, it introduces us to some really funny characters in the landscape of the film. It's a touch out of place in this sort of mystery, but um, but I find it really appealing. Well, and what's great about that scene is, you know, his his wife's reaction to all of that. Oh, you you know such interesting people. Yeah, I love you because <laughs> you're interesting friends. You're right. yeah. 
um, it, yeah, truly, I, it's it is a, a real showcase. The guy, the the guy with no teeth, the guy crying in the corner. <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, and then of course, not to not to put too fine a point on it, but right at the end, after we've been introduced to all of these fantastically, um, you know, comedic thugs, you know, sort of reformed convicts, uh, <laughs> you know, who who all seem to really get along with him well, uh, they introduce two reporters who are who come into the party, and and sort of the the uh, contradiction, or or I should say the 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 transposition of reporters, uh, you know, in the media in this room full of convicts and thugs. I think the sentiment that I walk away with is that, that really Van Dyke believes they belong right in the same, in the same place. <laughs> they, they belong in that world together. And I thought that was a really nice touch. Yes. They're all just mingling in there, yeah. enjoying their Christmas party. <laughs> <laughs> but, but again, nothing really, you know, and, and same thing at the party where we're introduced to Nick and Nora, where, um, uh, Winant's daughter introduces herself in the funny little, um, uh, exchange. Um, there's nothing really dramatic looking about these sequences. There isn't. Although I was I was watching it the second time more just focused on the camera work, camera position and everything. And I, I do feel like he knew how to move the camera, uh, the the uh, the well and just and placing the camera. Um, the very first shot we have in the film is this askew angle, uh, kind of a Dutch angle looking up on a wall of this this shadow of a kind of a mad scientist almost before it pans down to reveal Winant in working in his uh, on one of his experiments. That was a really interesting shot when uh, when we cut to the story uh, and we introduce um, Nick Charles. This is after Wynant's story has kind of ended. We fade out as we see his shadow uh, rescinding to the uh, in, into the darkness. We fade up in this in this uh, Christmas party and the camera's on a boom and it just comes it's it's like right under the piano which is a very interesting placement as we see under the piano we see all the people dancing the piano's up on a stage so we kind of still see everybody's heads as they're dancing in the background and then the camera booms up over everybody to reveal this big party before it comes and finds Dorothy Wynette's daughter and her fiance as they're dancing here and then of course the camera continues pushing past them all the way up to the bar where we finally get to meet Nick Charles in his glory as he's as he is coaching the bartender on how to properly shake a martini yes which was i i think another one of those great little nick charles moments that i thought was really wonderful but uh once he takes on that mantle they have this walk outside and uh they they manage to to uh, nora put put nora in a cab and send her off uh and and then things get dark Yes. And and so almost to your point, I, I think the the set really determined the the sort of interesting visuals, right? Because you're right, the film opens on a really great, stark kind of uh, you know, define the stereotype uh shot of the shadow on the wall kind of moving as he's playing with this like who knows what the heck that thing does. Like what what was that invention? Right. <laughs> Just six light bulbs on a bar and he's moving it back and forth that <laughs> makes funny noises. Uh, but we we get this great sense of mystery around the thin man, around Wynand himself. We don't know what he's what he's up to. We don't know if he's is he some sort of a, a criminal? Is he a con? There's some mystery. We never find out what that's all about. Uh, all we know is that he was looking for some some bonds that uh, he thought his former assistant had stolen, um, and and wanted that money back. And it turns out he he was kind of a dark guy. He he definitely was capable of. 
the film alludes to the fact that he was capable of doing some pretty diabolical things. Yeah, right. But then he disappears. The film changes tone until we get back into that sequence when when Nick goes into the basement and we get some really cool, very minimal lighting um, um, sort of setup. Very stark contrast, you know, single light uh, on the desk uh, to really highlight how dark everything else is in this workshop. I thought it was just fantastic, um, in, including Howe's placement of character in the frame. Mm-hmm. Um, he's walking down this long hall and he's just little tiny in the corner with such beautiful negative space in the rest of the frame. I just was blown away by some of these visuals. Yeah, it, it's really gorgeous. I mean, I think it works really well in context of what the film is trying to do. And I think that speaks to what Howe said about everyone's job is to be subservient to the story. It is a very light story. It's a light detective caper. It uh, It is really about the relationship of this couple. And to that point, it has a great look for what they're doing here. It does dabble in some of the darkness for that element of the story. And in, and when you're in those scenes, it's beautiful, dark cinematography. But even when it comes back to the dinner scene, it just kind of reverts to that very, uh, you know, kind of regular sort of Hollywood-looking setup. But in context of the story, again, it works for what, he, what they needed to do. What's, what's fascinating about that is you look at the sort of you know, compare this film to, let's say, Seven, mm-hmm. right? Uh, Quite a comparison, it, right? <laughs> uh, that is also a, a mystery. It's a heck of a, a mystery. Yeah. Uh, it, it, the what you get with Seven is a a film in which the boy you i really never get a sense that the tone the visual tone of the film changes from scene to scene whether we're sitting at dinner with three main characters uh you know trying to to see how brad pitt and morgan freeman are are interacting with one another uh, that film or that sequence is as dark and sort of jarringly visually tonally strange as uh what's in the box out in the in the middle of the desert and and i think that's credit to to darius kanji but i i wonder um you know, I, I don't know. Um, I wonder how we got to that point. You know what I mean? Where, where there's just, there is a visual style of the film and it's, it's pervasive throughout every sequence versus the thin man, which shows us, uh, I, I think a really interesting contrast of styles throughout the film. Well, it's, it, it, some of it does feel just, maybe it's because it has that stage shoot sensibility right, with right. it. This feels like every scene, even the streets of New York, all feel very much like this was all shot on the Hollywood backlot. Um, it was all controlled. Everything was controlled. And mm-hmm. I know that Howe liked working in these environments, but we also have to remember this was earlier in his career. I mean, he still, by this point in 1934, had a, a good uh, number of films under his belt and certainly could control what he was doing with his productions. But I think that um, in this particular case, I think it was still early enough on in everybody's career in the film that they were just making something that that did still fit with the um, the look that was so prevalent in in studio productions at the time. Mm-hmm. And we're going to see more as we sort of move through other films in his career. We'll see how he sort of evolves, too. Exactly. Um, man, the guy had a lot of stuff. 140 credits. 
Yeah, 140 credits. He directed a couple films. He did, uh, I mean, TV commercials, documentaries. He directed a TV series. He won two Oscars. I mean, very busy guy. Let's, uh, the, do you have anything else to say about him, or shall we talk a little bit about other folks involved in the film? Yeah, let's jump over to the rest of the folks. How about Van Dyke? Yeah, interesting uh, director who uh, who came on to do this film. He was um, he had just done a film beforehand, and I'm blanking on the name of it right now. I think it was Manhattan Melodrama, and uh, and he uh, worked with Powell in that. And then he had read this uh, this book. Oh, and Myrna Loy. He'd worked with the two of them, and he saw this uh, uh, relationship between the two of them developing off screen, where they just had the same. Uh, sensibilities, the same comedic timing, the way that they related to each other worked really well. And he had just read The Thin Man, and he's just like, oh, "I want to make this," and these guys would be perfect in the in in the film, and and so he wanted to cast them in the film. And I, uh, yeah, I, I think that uh, he's an interesting director um, who. I think he kind of also, along with Howe, was uh, brought up in the early days of the film business. He was uh, as uh, worked as an assistant director with D.W. Griffith back on Birth of a Nation and Intolerance, and um, slowly moved over to directing in 1917, uh, The Land of Long Shadows was his first film. And then, you know, like so many people in that era, he directed five more films that year. So, <laughs> <laughs> ah, the days of contract players. <laughs> that's right. That's right. But uh, yeah, I guess he was a really fast director. They called him One Take Woody. So he was a uh, very quick. He knew what he wanted. He got what he wanted and moved right on. And then he got an Oscar nomination actually for this film for uh, for the Thin Man. And uh, and then he also was somebody who acted, uh, I believe, in uh, in stuff, didn't he? Um. I don't know. I was busy looking at his credits as a director and seeing the change when he started being known as Major W.S. Van Dyke II. Oh, interesting. It, starting right that. around 1941, and I that right at the end, like he was, he wanted to be credited as as Major Van Dyke, and I was trying to figure out why. Why did he want to be uh, Major Van Dyke? The other interesting thing uh, about him is, and it, to your point, that he was very, very fast. He was um, really sought after in that era for specifically because he was fast, because he saved the studio so much money. And in this sort of era of contract player, there wasn't, you know, when you could churn out as many films as you possibly could, as efficiently as you possibly could, that was really uh, one of those key sought after skills to be able to do it pretty well. Yeah. So. Uh, interesting character. Well, and he's yes. also somebody who was known to, he let his actors ad-lib some of their lines, um, just kind of uh, play around with it a little bit. And that is something that worked really well when working with William Powell and Myrna Loy, because they did kind of have that banter and go back and forth. And so they say that some of the lines that were in these uh, in the Thin Man series, he directed, I believe, the first four of them, um, uh, were just things that they came up with on set. Good stuff from Van Dyke. Here you go, Pete. He was promoted yeah. to major prior to World War II. Patri right. Patriotic Van Dyke set up a Marine Corps recruiting center in his MGM office. He was one of the first Hollywood bigwigs to advocate early U.S. involvement, and he convinced stars like Clark Gable, James Stewart, Robert Taylor, and Nelson Eddy to become involved in the war effort. There you go. Now you know. Now you know. Smarter every day. <laughs> uh, okay. Let's talk about uh, uh, William Powell and Myrna Loy then a little bit. 
Yeah, what a what a pair. They're such a pair. Yeah. What fun they are on screen. And they were in 14 films together. Wow. I, I wonder if that's the most any pairing have been uh, in a, in films at any point. Do you know anyone else? Can you think of anyone else who's been in that many films together? I don't. Uh, I really don't. That's a lot. I, I don't... It, yeah. Um, I, it, they're just an iconic movie couple. I'm... In terms of volume of films, mm-hmm. I I don't I don't know. Yeah, that's crazy. Fourteen films. Yeah, these six plus a plus a whole slew of other ones. Um, so both before and after, I yeah. I really like him in this film. He uh, was nominated for uh, best actor for this film. I think he brought a lot to the table in this fun role. He's somebody who started out uh, as a villain in a lot of films, and I think it was only right around this time that people started uh, putting him into more comedic sorts of films. Um, in fact, I think was it Libeled Lady that came out. Um, uh, just before this one that was awfully funny it was a, a very funny film um oh I sorry that, that came out actually just after this but it's it's a very funny film that would be that would be a fun one to talk about one of these days i i haven't seen i haven't seen it i be, and i haven't seen many of william powell's uh films i've i've seen my man godfrey i've seen the great Siegfeld, um and i think that's it and the thin man obviously mm-hmm what else would I? What else would I have seen? Um, I don't know. Did you see Mr. Roberts? I don't think so. Yeah, I haven't was, seen that. Should one that either. be on my list of shame? Have it's, you seen it? I haven't, but it's one that we both probably should see. It was his last film, um, and it was—I uh, mean, a lot of great people in that one: Henry Fonda, James Cagney, yeah. Jack Lemmon. Um, It's—you uh, know—it it looks like it's uh, um, one of those films that uh, everybody should probably see. But uh, he was he was in a lot of stuff. And I think you're right. Like looking at his body of work, there aren't that many I have seen either. Uh, but there is something about him that is just imminently watchable. He commands the screen when he's on it. I think he just knows how to uh, hold hold a moment. Uh, have you know he can have those great expressions on his face. I think it's uh, it's just so much fun uh, to just watch him in this film. He just really is great. It's so funny because it was it leading up to and and this is back to this Philo Vance. I mean, he was in he was in five Philo as Philo Vance. He was in five Philo Vance movies between 1929 and 1933, and and you sort of get that Harrison Ford syndrome, right? You think you know I I get why Harrison Ford might have thought twice about joining Indiana Jones, right? After playing Han Solo in in as many movies as he did, and I I think that's a we get that here too. Like you wonder. Um, that that's an awfully quick turnaround to go from one successful series to another. Um, although I, I think arguably this, uh, given that we hadn't heard of Philo Vance up to this point, uh, <laughs> probably Nick Charles was, was, was the better play. Right. Exactly. Uh, interesting to know about William Powell. He, um, had worked with Gene Harlow several times and, uh, they fell in love and I believe they got engaged, um, right before she ended up, uh, dying. She died of uremia at the age of 26 before they could marry. And, um, and then that, her, that along with, uh, his cancer diagnosis um, slowed down his acting career for a little while. 
Um, it was really, I think, in the 40s that he slowed down quite a bit because of that um, while he was kind of getting himself over her death and his cancer before he really started jumping back in much uh, harder with his, uh, with his film work again. And he still did 15 films in the 40s. I think he took a nice, uh, nice long retirement because he uh, died of heart failure at the age of 91 in 1984. How about Myrna Loy? Myrna Loy was uh, a a full-blooded American. She was born in Montana, but... Full-blooded, like a pedigree? That's right, that's right. But interestingly, in the early days of her career, people um, cast her as foreigners all the time. Like, nobody... There's something about her look that is unique enough that people ended up casting her as, as gypsies or or uh, all these different foreigners, uh, like uh, uh, she was opposite, uh, um, was it Lon Chaney in an early film? I can't remember now, but uh, she was this this foreign kind of uh, witch in one of his uh, 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 Fu Manchu movies, I think. And so she was, uh, it was, uh, it took a little while, I think, for her to kind of be seen as a, uh, a leading lady. And then once she did, once she kind of hit that rise to stardom right in the, uh, in the early 30s, uh, uh, paired with this film, I think that really helped her kind of uh, get out there and just get into all sorts of other things. I, I don't think I've seen any other Myrna Loy films. I'm going through her list of credits. I can't see one that I have seen. Except, well, obviously the Great Seafield that also had William Powell in it. And likewise, I haven't seen much more from her, except I think she was also in Libeled Lady. So that would be uh, my other film that I'd seen her in. Um, but yeah, I just, I love her in this. And interesting. Oh, she's terrific. She and uh, Clark Gable, I guess, uh, in the early days of their career, when uh, they would do anything to act, they were both extras. And if you look in uh, the original silent Ben-Hur that uh, um, was made in the 20s, she is actually uh, an extra. <laughs> You'd never be able to find her. <laughs> they let in like thousands of people to be extras in like the big, uh, the big scenes. And so she's in there somewhere. That's awesome. Yeah, pretty funny. That is really funny. Uh, She was terrific in this film. They make a wonderful couple. uh, And uh, it's, I, that's, that for me is what makes it worth the price of admission for this film. Absolutely. Just watching Nick and Nora. Yep. Uh, who else stands out to you? Um, I got not... I got one. <laughs> oh, okay. Um, Maureen O'Sullivan uh, pops in. It's nice to see her uh, in one of her early film roles. Um, it was shortly after this, I think, that uh, uh, maybe not shortly after this, but uh, she uh, ended up being in a lot of the Tarzan movies with Johnny Weissmuller. She was adorable, truly, in this film. Yeah, she's great. The most, I, I think the most fun uh, character for me every time I he was on screen I just was delighted was uh, I think the um, he he was sort of the MacGuffin I think of the of the film was Gilbert uh, Dorothy's brother <laughs> yes he was he was uh, a, a student of uh, played by William Henry he was a student of um, psychology and was all about uh murder and mayhem and was always asking can i see a body or you know really really dark very dark character and and i you know obviously he was he was in there so that we would be uh i i think uh, uh led to believe he was the the bad guy uh spoiler he wasn't uh but he was sure fun to watch make every single scene super uncomfortable it's funny i never 
never thought that they were trying to make him seem like the the bad guy. Because, you didn't? No, because he's just he's so, so obvious. He's so goofy. He's he's <laughs> so I, I he was just a really strange one, and I thought that was hilarious. I had so much fun watching him uh, because he was just such a such an odd duck uh, that uh, yeah, he's definitely one to one to remember for sure. Truly, he he's been in a whole bunch of stuff. This William Henry, two hundred and twenty nine credits to uh, his name. Started as a child actor. Uh, and um, uh, ended up uh, having a healthy, healthy, healthy career. Thought it was interesting that Cesar Romero pops in there very briefly as Chris, uh, the uh, the the new husband for uh, Winant's ex-wife. Yeah, I didn't. I couldn't make sense of his character at all. I couldn't either. It was just. It was a, a very. Um, I, I couldn't figure out where they're going with that. Trying to say that. She, because it seemed like Wynette's family was well off, but then he seemed to be just a a mess of a man, like uh, the type of person that Nick Charles would have gotten out of prison. Yes. (laughs) So I couldn't quite figure out where that was going, but it was just funny to see Cesar Romero popping in uh, long before he started working as the Joker on the old Batman TV show, which is, I think, the only thing I really remember him from. So it was funny to kind of see the early days of him. And then uh, I was going to mention Harold Huber, which I think is, uh, he's an interesting actor. He's got a great face. He's the, um, he was, he was the one that clearly seems like the one that they're pinning as the, as the guilty one, even though uh, he does get killed and that kind of ends that right away. But he's got a great face and he's got that scar on his cheek, which I guess was from, you know, in his youth, he had an amateur fencing match and, and and got a nice gash on his face that led to that uh, wonderful bad guy look that he had so well. You know, we didn't talk about Porter Hall. Oh, yes. Uh, shows up as Macaulay, yep. the uh, lawyer, right? Right, right. Yeah. Uh, this was one of his first films, and he was older in this in, in this film uh, in 1934. He was born in 1888. Uh, and so he was older when he came to it. Um, but he was a, a fascinating character, ended up moving on to play, um, you know, not so many kind of, uh, well, he, and, and in fact, he ends up being the bad guy, the, which is funny because he ends up being bad guys an well, awful lot. Well, he was, uh, the, the thing that I love uh, him in is uh, Miracle on 34th Street. He's the, uh, yeah. he's the uh, guy who administers the psychological tests to his Macy employees. Right. Yeah. Right. Uh, but he also had a, a rich career uh, from the 30s through the 50s um, uh, when he passed away in 53. Anything else you want to talk about this film as we uh, get down to wrapping it up here? I don't think so. I mean, it did get nominated for uh, for Best Picture. Like we said, it did receive a few Oscar nominations. It lost its Oscar to, uh, to It Happened One Night, another film we've talked about on the show uh, in 1934. So... Um, we love that film, and I, I would say that that was a better choice than this one. I mean, I do enjoy this film, but It Happened One Night is just one that I feel is a much stronger film. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Although I had a hysterically good time watching this movie. Oh, yeah. Uh, it, it's, uh, it certainly didn't crack my top... Uh, I don't even think it cracked my top 100 no, but on my it, own personal flick chart. I, it does make me want to watch the rest of the series because yep. I did have such a wonderful time just getting to know this couple. They are so much fun on screen together. 
Uh, how did so? How did it do in terms of numbers? Did you, were you able to find anything? I found a few numbers, uh, not a whole lot, but it did. Uh, you know, it did okay for itself. I mean, obviously, it was uh, it was very popular enough to spur on this whole series, and people just love Nick and Nora Charles. But from what I found, um, this film costs about two hundred twenty-six thousand four hundred eight dollars to make, which in today's dollars is about four million dollars. So, you know, it's a decent uh, budget, especially for a studio film. I'm sure that was fine. Um, I couldn't find anything uh, specifically domestic, but what I did find was just a worldwide gross of $1.4 million internationally. So adjusted, that was about uh, close to $25 million. So, you know, it it succeeded. It did pretty well for itself. Made about $224,000 per finished minute. Not bad. Certainly got itself some sequels. Yes, it did. Let's rank it. Let's do it. Head over to flickchart.com slash the next reel and check out our stack rankings. And let's see if this is going to crack. I don't know. What do you think? Top 50? I doubt it. Uh, yeah, I do too. But um, yeah, let's see if it gets into the top half. That's what All right, let's, that's let's 90 do or so. All right. Okay. The Thin Man or Mad Max? <laughs> I think we're both going to uh, say Max? Mad Max. Yeah, Mad Max. The Thin Man or Taxi Driver? Huh. Well, I think you're going to say Taxi Driver. I am actually going to say Thin Man. I, oh. As much as I love Taxi Driver, it is a harder film to watch. Thin Man is a breeze to watch. <laughs> Boy, that's the truth. Yeah, I, I also definitely say Thin Man. Thin Man or Field of Dreams. And here I will go Field of Dreams. Baseball. You go, right? Are you really, really solidly Field of Dreams? 100%. The uh, right. if for nothing else than uh, James uh, Earl Jones's fantastic speech at the end. Okay, I'll, I'll give you that. The Thin Man or Run Lola Run. I would say Run Lola Run. I would too. The Thin Man or Splash. I would say Splash. I would say Thin Man. <laughs> okay, I'll give you Thin Man just because it's a classic and it spurred okay. all those wonderful sequels. And Splash spurred a terrible sequel. <laughs> The Fit Man, speaking of guilty pleasures earlier, or The Adventures of Buckaroo Banzai. I will do Thin Man. I'll do Thin Man. All right. Thin Man or Gallipoli? I haven't seen that one pop up in a while. Hmm. But I think I'll do Thin Man. I will do Thin Man too. The Thin Man or The Poseidon Adventure? I will do Thin Man. I'm a little conflicted on this one, uh, so I'll just go with you on this one. (laughs) (laughs) I'm conflicted, so I give up. I quit. (laughs) All right, that puts us at 129 out of 186. So it didn't didn't crack the top half, but you know what? We've talked about a lot of movies we like. A lot of good movies. I'm okay with that. All right. Where do we go from here in our uh, exploration of James Wong Hall? We're going to be uh, jumping forward a few years, and we're going to be talking about the film King's Row. King's Row. 1942. This This is one that I have not seen before, so I'm going to be jumping in blind on this one. Um, I can't remember if I've seen this one. Not a lot of King movies. Uh, the uh, IMDb. No, no, I haven't seen this. This yeah. is Ronald Reagan. Yeah, IMDb says the dark side and hypocrisy of provincial American life is seen through the eyes of five children as they grow to adulthood at the turn of the century. Yep, I haven't seen it. This is going to be fun. Yeah, it'll be fun to jump into one that uh, neither of us have seen yet. Absolutely. We'll see if it's a movie we like. <laughs> Here's hoping. Uh, until then, I got to go to bed. All right, man. I'm going to go have a, uh, six martinis. I think. 
All right, I'm gonna I'm gonna start in the middle of the road with a three star uh, from Roberto Franigi. Roberto, he says the Thin Man had the advantage of being based on a successful book by Dashiell Hammett, who had himself been a private eye. The audience did not bother about who murdered the butler with a silver sliver of ice in the locked library. They were asked to be interested in what was happening now, why it was happening, and sometimes how it was happening. They could be just as concerned with the byplay between Detective Nick Charles and his wife Nora as in wondering who did the murders. For most of the film, in fact, the audience is led to believe that Wynant, the missing invest- inventor, is the murderer. Only toward the end does Nick show that Wynant has been dead long, a long time and someone else is doing the killing. Another factor which made The Thin Man notable was that Nick and Nora were, well, almost real people. Rich they might be, hard drinkers they certainly were. They were a married couple in the film and they actually managed to appear to enjoy it, making gentle fun of one another at every, in every scene they played. The Thin Man pointed the way with such, success, with such success that five follow-ups were made, culminating in Song of the Thin Man in 47. Most of the Thin Man films are predictable, but they were historically important for introducing sophistication and witty repartee into the private eye film. Their biggest asset was that they were escapist pictures made for a depression-weary audience. The Thin Man pictures took the audience away from grim reality simply by ignoring it. Mm. A middling review, but I think it uh, it captures my sense uh, uh, really very well. And something that they bring up that we didn't really talk about, but I mean, Prohibition had just ended, and there was an yes. awful lot of drinking in this film. Awful lot of drinking. <laughs> this they were really reveling in it. Yes. Well, yeah. I've got a I've got a one star. In fact, the only real one star review over on Amazon. Um, Powell, okay, Myrna, stay at home and shut up. This is by Arthur Van Pelt, <laughs> quote history buff. Arthur says, talky and phony chemistry. I am amazed that folks buy into the idea that a special chemistry existed between Powell and Loy. I find their, quote, banter mostly boring, insipid, artificial, and thoroughly phony. Bad scripting combined with two actors who act as if they couldn't care less about each other. Why Nick Charles doesn't strangle his irritating film wife remains the biggest mystery in this film. Powell on the case provides the only redeeming feature and the only scenes that I pay attention to. When nagging Myrna Loy shows up, I'm off to the fridge. Boy, is she a pest. Wow. I like her. Haters gotta hate. Wow. Amazon. You know what I got the other day, Pete? Stephen King's latest. Want to borrow it? Do you know who you're talking to? What do you mean? Andy, when's the last time I read a paper book? It's been like decades. I would much rather use Kindle, or better yet, Audible. What am I thinking? I don't read paper books anymore either. I am an audiobook guy all the way. For those of you looking to listen to the books behind the films we talk about here on The Next Reel, get a free audiobook download and 30-day free trial at thenextreel.com slash audible. It's the way to go. Okay, we're going to do a little game. I'm going to name a series from season four, and you try to guess how many movies from it were adaptations. Didn't we just do this in season three? We're going to do this one as a speed round. Here we go. Terry Gilliam. The Adventures of Baron Munchausen. Jason Reitman. Labor Day. Comedy by the Brothers Cohen. Oh, brother. Stephen King. Ah, uh, The Shining, uh, Cujo, The Dead Zone, App Pupil, Misery, Stand By Me. What else did we cover? Oh, you got one more on Audible. Carpenter? Ah, Christine! Christine! Hey, you got it. We've covered lots of great movies that started as books, and most of those are on Audible. 
Books like The Exorcist, Requiem for a Dream, The Bishop's Wife, The Poseidon Adventure, Syriana, Million Dollar Baby, L.A. Confidential, Double Indemnity, Detour, The Thin Man. So many great movies from so many great sources. Producing this podcast is a lot of fun, but takes a lot of time. We've dropped the dynamically inserted ads because they're so annoying and have no connection to our content. Plus, they just jam those things in wherever they see fit. We listened to you when you said you didn't like them. So now we're directly appealing to you, our dear listener. Please consider an Audible subscription to help support The Next Reel and our family of podcasts. I have been using Audible along with my family for decades now. I love it, and I have read hundreds of books through it. I couldn't be more pleased with their service, and I know you'll love it too. Head to thenextreel.com slash audible and get your free trial. It really helps us out. And you have a world of over 200,000 audiobooks open to you. So much great material available. Dive in with a free 30-day trial at thenextreel.com slash audible. Start listening to amazing audiobooks of your favorite movie source material with your first free audiobook today. That's thenextreel.com slash audible.